Welcome to the Forecasting Impact, a podcast supported by the International Institute of Forecasters. This show brings you the most inspiring people to discuss a wide range of subjects on forecasting science and practice in business, society, economy, and education. Thank you for choosing to spend some time with us today. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this podcast episode of Forecasting Impact. Today's guest is Dr. Anne Robinson, and she is Chief Strategy Officer at Kinexis. We have a new co-host today, my colleague, Anna Sprujinis, who also is my colleague in the Early Career Researchers team. Anna, hi, and it's wonderful to have you join me today. Hi, everyone. Yes, I'm Anna Sprujinis. I'm joining from Lancaster University in the UK, and I've always been a part of this behind-the-scenes team for this podcast, but now I'm here. And I'm so excited and thrilled to be here for this first episode with Anne Robinson as well. Thank you yeah, for having so, me. So just to make it a bit confusing, we've got Anna and Anne today. So Anna is normally one of our technical people. She's the one who makes it all happen behind the screens. And now she's with us. So Anne, I shall introduce you for those who haven't heard of you, but I think that will be very few because... You're a quite known thought leader in the field of analytics and digital transformation. You've got expertise in operations, supply chain, strategy. You're a well-asked for speaker. And we are so lucky that we're able to make some time in your busy schedule to join us today. So welcome. Thank you so much. And it's my pleasure to be here. This uh, community has been pretty important throughout my professional journey. So it's my pleasure. Wonderful. So could you tell us something about yourself? It's a very general question, but just um, who you are and uh, what you do in your role at Kinexis. Absolutely. So uh, Anne Robinson, I am from Newfoundland, Canada. So that's as far as you can go east in North America before we cross the pond and meet up with Anna. I have had a academic career and professional career in applications of math. And uh, through the twists and turns and opportunities along the way, I now sit uh, responsible for strategy, thought leadership, and internal or strategic communications for Kinexis, which has been an interesting spot to land given all of the technical work I've done prior to this. Yes, because you have a PhD from Stanford University, very impressive. When you were doing your PhD, did you already know that you wanted to go to practice or... I did, actually. I was always very applied in my work, and I'd always had the sense, as much as I'd wanted to do a PhD, and I did, and and coming from Canada, I did my undergraduate in math. I wound up at the University of Waterloo and did a master's there in transportation logistics, and then was lucky enough to arrive at Stanford to do a PhD. And if you think of our chemistry friends, they have their chemistry lab to validate that what they've learned actually works in practice. Well, as an industrial engineer, which is where I did a department where I did my work, industry is really our lab. And I wanted to see the application of these models in practice to see what worked, to see what didn't work. I can see my career taking me back to academia. And certainly you both know how critical I feel the relationship is between 
practitioners and academics and our collective responsibility to continue to enrich the disciplines and domains in which we exist. But for me, I had always had the mind to go into industry and to really apply what I'd learned. And I'm probably one of the few people who can say every aspect of my PhD I've applied in practice. Oh, well, and there you go. We already have our main quote for the article, the industry is our lab. That is so very true. Forecasting is very applied. So you're now in the world of operations and supply chain. Is that something that is very closely linked to an engineering degree? So, you know, a rose by any other name, right? So I I went in through, I did my, my master's was in operations research as part of an applied science degree. The PhD was industrial engineering and engineering management with a focus in production and operations management was the subdiscipline. You could have looked at counterparts in the business school that would have fallen under a slightly different set of, you know, a slightly different acronym. So very similar. You have to peel these degrees back to really understand what the scope is. But I was doing customer engagement, inventory management, planning as part of my PhD. And I walked into Cisco and I'm doing inventory management and supply chain network design. And so very similarly linked as I launched my career. How does your daily job looks like now? (laughs) It's very different. (laughs) Very different. Uh Very different. So I went from being a customer of Kenaxis and really being on the customer side to joining the leadership suite. Now, it probably makes more sense if I give you a little bit of my career trajectory. So I started as a supply chain architect, and that was doing supply chain modeling. And then at Cisco, we transformed to be more of a functionally aligned supply chain. So you had a supply planning, well, you had a planning organization and a manufacturing organization and a quality organization. And I wound up as part of the planning organization. And that's what really led me down the path of starting to look at forecasting and forecasting models. And I realized I really wanted to be a manager. So I started learning the best techniques to be an effective manager, as well as to create a forecasting capability at Cisco. And through Informs, a professional society similar to IIF, I met somebody from HP who had done very similar to what I was about to embark on. And he said, if I was going to do it all again, I would mimic rapid prototyping, meaning I would do a model, get the stakeholders to believe in it, then I would change it, expand it, get them to understand and sign off on it. So that was the mentality I went in with as we started, again, me and a few interns became a few employees. And what we did was we started and we made sure that first people saw that the models we were creating aligned with their intuition. So if you said, mean calculation. This thing calculated the mean and it was the same numbers, just things that would make people confident that the math you were bringing to the table was accurate. Then we started, we focused on not the most important products, but maybe the B products, right? The B, if you stratify things that are important, but not so important that if they were slightly incorrect, you're not going to lose your minds. And we showed that we could forecast better than what we were doing. And then we expanded to more products. And then we showed that we could automate it. And being on this rapid prototyping type of journey and getting buy-off along the way at every step meant that the stakeholders who would ultimately have to consume that forecast felt like they were part of creating the process. And it was through that journey and through the influence of some very expert people, I learned about the importance of marrying an academic discipline or a mathematical discipline like forecasting and a softer discipline 
well, maybe softer isn't the word, a, a more human-centric discipline like change management and how important it was to have both skill sets. Because ultimately, our forecast models mean nothing if nobody listens to them. So you have to think about the human engagement side as well. So from there, I went on. I don't know if you want to jump in. I see a question. Looks like a question on the yeah, tip I'm of just, I'm time. just wildly enthusiastic because you described my entire research topic. So coming from psychology as a background, I'm looking into the acceptance of people of forecasting algorithms. And it's so important what you say there. It is not just about improving forecasting performance and providing the best model for the most profitable product. It's about gaining that acceptance. So I'm happy to hear that you've gone along that route as well. I think that's one of the most important topics that anybody in a technical field needs to be able to add to their curriculum and to their skill set because the more complicated the model, or let's go from a predictive to a prescriptive model, right? an OR, an optimization model. You know, if it was intuitive, you were probably doing it already. So chances are the results of these models are going to be counterintuitive. So do you expect somebody who's got a shiny new skill set coming out of their fresh out of their PhD program, go into a business place and say, look, my model is going to do better than the work you've been doing. They are going to kick you out the door. So the question is, how do you build that trust? that relationship, and that credibility. We worked with a vendor through that forecasting development process where we built the models and whatnot. And one of the their thought leaders said to me early on, no one will get on the bus if they don't know where it's going. And that kind of stuck with me in the sense that how can I expect these people to believe me, to trust the work product, to actually know what it is if they don't have some kind of examples or if they weren't there to see that, yes, We heard your assumptions, we heard your challenges, we've modified it, adapted, or we can give you a reason why that wouldn't be included. And I'll tell you towards the end of it, as we got more complicated, and I said, I would get to a certain point and say, and if you want to know more, come and join my team, because clearly you have a propensity for mathematical forecasting and would like to be part of the team. And that generally got a laugh and people would move on. But it was really, really important engaging your stakeholders early the science of change needs to complement your mathematical skill set. Yes, that's a bit the danger of that increasing sophistication of models is that they become such a black box that people don't know anymore what reasoning is behind it. So I've heard someone from industry saying, you know, I input to data, something happens and I get an output. And then they tend to change that output a little bit which is often not that beneficial for accuracy. So I heard you mention that as well. We get the buy-in by having people provide their input to the model. So depending on, and this is where you you know, you know need people who are far more into the day-to-day than I am. First of all, mini black boxes. You try and make your black boxes as small as possible. And people are going to accept a lot of small black boxes before they're going to say, okay, you know, I've been gone for six months. I have this giant model. Just give me your data and listen to the answer. There is no way they're going to follow you. Nowadays, particularly in the forecasting space, we have a lot more tools that allow for explainability. And those are really important. We didn't necessarily have access to those same types of tools, you know, 20 years ago when I was embarking on this journey. So if you think about that 
explainability of whatever level of sophistication, explainability of AIML, explainability of your of your statistical modeling, explainability of your OR modeling. So important to help people on the journey. But all of your models have assumptions, and that's really what I was speaking to. And those assumptions will come from your stakeholders and should be influenced by your stakeholders. They've been in this job. They've been successful to this point. What do they know? And by combining that domain knowledge along with the mathematical prowess, that combination is really the key to success. That's the magic. So figuring out how to make that happen, that's how you're going to get the best results possible and the best adoption, quite frankly. What do you think about big data and the fact of this? Because I totally agree that domain knowledge, mathematical knowledge as well, they are mm-hmm. like key components. But uh, what is the role for big data? What do you think? Well, about it's, the it's, another input. it's another input. It depends on the problem you're going to solve. There are not a lot of supply chain problems that necessarily have the volume of big data in the quintessential application of that term, right? If you think about SKUs and moving through a supply network, it's not often to a level that you'd call big data necessarily. But I do think you can answer so many questions and you have the mathematical horsepower, your computational horsepower, and the data availability. I mean, this is the time for anybody who has any type of mathematical prowess, the data, the tools available to you, you can answer questions with such greater accuracy and such greater insight than you ever could before. The other thing you have at your fingertips is speed. The speed to be able to do a lot of this is certainly different than it was even five years ago. And that is really critical in this day and age because we live in such an unpredictable world. So our forecast models, our plans that we made yesterday We could have another ship stuck in another canal and suddenly the world changes again. And so we very quickly need to be able to pivot. And that computational power, plus that human consciousness, ingenuity, the ability to put the world in context, again, it's that combination that will allow you to be successful. But Anna, getting back to your original question on my journey. So I did all these things with forecasting and I complained about data. I complained about data a lot. And I'll tell you, In the real world, if you complain about something, you will probably come to own that thing. And very soon after I moved from the supply chain planning organization to the supply chain strategy organization at Cisco to take care of the supply chain data. And very quickly that expanded from data to also metrics. And if you're looking at metrics, metrics are really how you measure success. Well, you need to know what you're measuring it against. So that started me down the path of really understanding strategy and a combination of organizational strategy and then supply chain success and merging those together and figuring out what that meant. So I spent several years doing that and we did all kinds of things with much more complicated math and some very simple things to to just measure the success and try to shift us to more leading indicators from lagging indicators. And there's all kinds of interesting things you can do in the world of metrics. And then uh, as I matured in that function and became really We had a lot of fun and and a lot of opportunity to bring the supply chain world and the marketing organization closer together because your supply chain operates uh, based on the market and, and there was a good handshake between those two groups. And then I had the opportunity to move from the West Coast of the United States to the East Coast to work for Verizon Wireless, where they were starting up 
a brand new supply chain strategy and analytics team. So it was just it was just me going out to start this organization. But if you think that was around 2011 timeframe, and that's around the time when cell phones were going from one or two phones with a car charger and maybe a set of headphones to becoming our replacement computers. So all of a sudden they went from half a dozen SKUs to a couple of thousand SKUs and supply chain management became so much more important. There were some attempts at, at aligning the forecast, enabling SNOP, but they were really at their nascent stage. So having a greenfield opportunity to bring my high-tech experience and bringing it into a world of retail, which really what Verizon Wireless is, was a tremendous opportunity to really, again, start and look at a different industry, apply the same types of models with all that learning behind me, that rapid prototyping approach, engaging the right level of stakeholders and focusing on what we could do to deliver value we started down the same path, and uh, which was but a lot more focused on strategy at that point, which is against what expanded my strategy portfolio and, and sort of maturing those organizational dynamics and bringing it all together in the context of a major multinational organization. Yeah, so you started by saying I had a thing with data and then you went on to metric. And then when you arrived at Verizon, you just had a flood of data coming in. That must have been quite the challenge to you get thrown into a new environment and immediately there is also new data and not established procedures to base yourself on. So is that how you got more into the higher level strategy? Absolutely. In fact, every role that I've been in, I have been me and then have grown a team. So even when I started those, both of those roles at, at Cisco where there was no team, new functions, I arrived at Verizon, a new function, a new capability, and, and, and absolutely. So growing a team, growing a perspective, maturing the supply chain capability at the organization, it takes all kinds of different skills. And again, going back to the importance of understanding, appreciating, continue to stay on top of the technical game, but at the same time, align it to things like change management, organizational psychology, things like that to understand the dynamics of the organization, because you really, our least forecastable behavior is are the human dynamics, right? And how are humans going to respond? And all of those pieces of information that you can bring in from the social sciences are really your indicators for success. So combining all those together is what's going to make you successful. Yeah. After 11 years in this research field on the role of judgment, really, and human behavior in forecasting, it can be a bit frustrating sometimes. And I can imagine that it's like that in practice even more that you really need to engage leadership skills, communication skills, what we call soft skills. And sometimes it's looked at a bit derogatory. You know, it's just soft skills, but it is so important in everyday business life. A thousand and one percent. When I arrived at Verizon, there was a forecasting system in place and nobody was using it. They were validating every single number that came out for, you know, 1,500, 2,000 SKUs. I said, what is going on here? Well, it was, so I, I'm sure everyone listening is, is familiar, you know, if you 
engage with a vendor, if you try a model and you customize it to a moment in time and you don't refresh your models over time, you're going to get stuck. And this particular system had been designed for a moment in time because of a lack of stakeholder engagement and a lack of focus on change management. It was just created to look exactly like their um, spreadsheet-based forecasting system that had been there previously. And here we are, however many years later, and there is a complete lack of understanding, a lack of trust, and a lack of use. So one of my first things I had to tackle was say, okay, is this this the right tool? It was okay. I mean, it was a medium-sized supply chain, really, with that number of products. And the level of mathematical sophistication didn't need to go through the roof. So then it was a matter of getting the human element involved. There were also some things like, this is where the importance, we talk about that future forecast practitioner. You may not need to create the most complicated models. A lot of the tools, the systems out there now contain a lot of the models, but just understanding the science, we had a lot of sparse data sets. And you know, if you don't meet a normality assumption in a lot of basic forecasting models, they fall down. And that's what was happening. So if you have division by zero, you get the wackiness happening in your models and it was spitting out things that were just ridiculous. And rather than going back and saying, okay, what is, what's going on here? We have, we have a mismatch between the, the tool and, and the models it's using and the actual data sets. People just rejected the whole thing because there wasn't necessarily the, that data science mentality. There were planners that were using this to plan. They didn't have time, quite frankly, right, to go through their day and they needed to plan. And that's why that understanding the science of the forecasting, understanding you don't have to build the models. You don't need to be PhDs like the three of us, quite frankly, you, but you need to understand. You need to have good sophistication in your knowledge. But then I would say complement that with your communication skills, your change management skills, some basic program management skills. That's the combination that you need. Sorry, I'm going to give the word right to you, but this is the perfect lead-in for saying that we have Polly from Kinexis in a few weeks' time. So keep an eye on our social media for the early career section, exactly talking about that, about the job skills that are necessary. And as you can hear, it's not just about the math. It's about the human aspect as well. But I, I wanted just to say that I'm so happy and that you say that uh, not only statistical models matter and sophisticated statistical models, but actually like this aspect of transparency, of understandability of these models, that they are actually uh, agile enough, but also like humans who are using them, agile enough to understand and to use them quickly and adapt or maybe change some small small parameters as well there that they can actually deal like quite quickly. And these soft skills are quite uh, essential from that perspective as well. This is like a huge note for me because I think this is the fact that we are forgetting in academia quite often. Mm. And yeah, hopefully with uh, like more practitioners coming and saying that, you know, like you have to explain your models rather than just make them more complicated or yeah, more flexible. It's not enough. We actually need to to, to spend time on explaining them as well. I was just going to say they really need to be anchored in value. So one of the things I say to my team all the time is hard work does not equal value delivered. Just because you spent a lot of time refining this model and maybe you improved it by, you know, 
0.1%, if you can't articulate the value, then it's a little bit of it's a little bit of lost effort, quite frankly. And that's one of the things I find in the transition of people going from academia into industry. And oftentimes in academia, we have the luxury of getting the best answer possible and taking as much time as we might need. I mean, you know, within reason, but you have this, you're not constrained by your timeline. Whereas in industry, you have a fixed amount of time and what you get, the best you can do, that's it. And we move on. And that can often be, particularly if you're an optimization person and you have to wrap your mind around something perhaps not being optimal, it can be challenging. It can be a difficult transition for people, but having that awareness and certainly speaking to those around you just to have that awareness, make sure you're focused on value because it can be a difficult transition for sure. So you're telling us that now and we happen to be both in the field of judgmental forecasting. So we're like, yes, yes, of course. But is it news for some companies that you work with that the people component is so important? Because I can imagine that it's management deciding we are going to go to Kinaxis uh, for help in our digital transformation. But the team needs to get along as well. Are there companies who are surprised by that or is that generally accepted? So you're talking about the, the digital transformation journey. I mean, I think that companies are at different levels of sophistication, but we certainly talk about the importance of change management, of reevaluating your processes to do a lift and shift from where you are to where you're going. All you're going to do is take all your bad habits with you. So really thinking about the people, because oftentimes when you do a major transformation in an organization, the skill sets required coming out of that transformation are not the same ones that you've had previously. So you need to think about what skill sets you need and what some of the training you may need to make available to your employees so that they have the opportunity to meet those new requirements. It's not easy. Ultimately, those that are more successful going through a digital transformation are those that re realize these attributes earlier on. We have a lot of customers that focus on the next version of a supply chain planner, a supply chain practitioner, a network planner, they're often called, because they're responsible for the end-to-end -end of that particular product. And really with the skills that we spoke about, right, the supply chain science, the collaboration skills, the communication skills. And these days, we're also advocating for some financial acumen and to really Because we're in a day and age when we're not trying to just focus on minimizing cost, I think the pandemic has made everybody realize that supply chains can really impact your top line as well. So enabling that language of finance in your supply chain organization is another important skill for the future of supply chain. Actually, it leads to my question quite well. I wanted to ask whether your job and your role in Connects, has it changed due to COVID? We didn't even get to what my day-to-day -day looks like. So maybe let me yeah. spend a moment on that and I'll, I'll talk a little about that. And then uh, how has it changed? So as the chief strategy officer, one of the things that I am primarily responsible for is really curating, orchestrating strategy for our organization. So part of my purview is thought leadership and industry outreach, which you mentioned, Polly Mitchell Guthrie is coming to speak. So that function is really understanding what's happening in the supply chain space. What's happening in some of our key verticals, we focus on seven verticals and what's happening within those industries, as well as what's evolving from a technique and technology perspective, right? Are people talking about 
demand sensing in a different kind of way? Are they looking at supply in a different kind of way? Are there new techniques emerging? You know, there's a lot of energy right now on the uh, value of leveraging AI and optimization in concert in a new kind of way. So what are we hearing? What's important? And being able to bring that back into Canaxis and present that as part of our, to our R&D organization, to our product management organization, so they understand what's happening. And that type of feedback, we call it a sentinel function, really right? listening and learning, becomes part of crafting our strategy. So that, along with you know, what the, the various um, other executive leaders in the organization are seeing, or, and we bring all of that together. So I spend a lot of time focused in that area of, of continuous strategic planning. Now, as part of our thought leadership organization, we also have a responsibility of storytelling. So bringing what we're doing at Canaxis, what we're hearing through our different industries and, and what's happening in supply chain, and really what are some of the cool things that are going on, and bringing that back to the world. So whether that's in a professional industrial setting, whether that's for a, a customer or a group of customers, or as you're aware of, we have a, a pretty rich academic program, which we launched during the pandemic as a way to start helping out our academic colleagues by providing guest lectures and things like that, and us being very well-versed of being virtual. And that's now since expanded into modernizing case studies, we even have a game that we're just about to launch, a new supply chain game that will allow you to try different types of planning. And um, that's been really important because I, I really see those conversations with graduate students. This is the next generation of supply chain practitioner. And I just talked about the importance of that person having different skills, having a different thought process. You know, I want to influence them during their academics so that they're even better prepared coming into a new supply chain role. Yeah, that, that's fantastic. And, and I think a lot of companies can take an example in that, you know, it's it's a win-win situation for both academia and practice. And um, well, it, you do so much. I mean, I was reading your bio on the Kinaxis side, reading your LinkedIn, and I thought, where does she get the energy? And I hear now you're running on passion, on pure passion. And you're so enthusiastic about the things that you're talking about that I get enthusiastic. So you're much asked for as a speaker, if I'm not mistaken. You mentioned briefly before we started recording that this is the fifth interview in as many days, give or take. So where do you find the energy? Where do you find the time? Share your wow. secret. <laughs> well, I, I'm. I, you're right. I'm very passionate about this. I think it's really important for us to be sharing our thoughts, um, highlighting critical conversations. And the other, I mean, this is a wonderful podcast to have three women on this podcast, but it's quite unique, right? And one of the things and you'll see, Polly shares my perspective, you can't be what you can't see. And if there is one girl out there who is watching who says, you know what, I can do that. Whether it's in the forecasting space of supply chain space or something completely different, there's somebody who's managed to get to a certain level and has accomplished things. So I, I feel pretty strongly that, you know, it's what do they say? I'm a female executive by, by career and advocate by necessity, because I think it's really important for women to get out there to share their thoughts and to inspire other women to take chances, 
apply for the job, try the new thing, be curious, be hungry, ask questions, raise your hand, because you can do it. You can do it. And somebody needs to hear that today. Yeah, there are a lot of women out there who need to hear it. And I just want to add, and it's on your LinkedIn, so I'm going to presume it's okay to mention one of your roles, many one of your many roles is mom. So you get to be an example for your kid as well. It's a daughter, right? Yes, she's four. And I'm an only parent, which makes for an interesting, interesting time. But uh, yeah, she has uh, been on many a conference stage already because she doesn't necessarily like if I go without her. And, uh, <laughs> and it's been great fun and uh, definitely a, a different twist, but certainly a, a something I feel very privileged, a role I feel very privileged to hold. Yes, it's amazing how you combine all those roles. There is so much we haven't touched upon yet. You have been in very important functions also in organizations such as Informs. You are very highly connected with the IIF. Mom, uh, Chief Strategy Officer, what, all of them. So if it's okay by you, I want to ask you a very informal thing. If you have some spare time, and that's a big if, <laughs> what do you do to relax? <laughs> well, my, my daughter and I have a lot of fun. And, you know, I find over time your your habits and your hobbies change. And maybe one of the things that I did discover during the pandemic are the adult Lego sets are quite fun. And she loves to do Lego. And then I'll do an adult one and she'll just play with it. She likes to make her own thing anyway. So it's we sort of have fun together with uh, with crafting different things out of Lego. That's wonderful oh, to hear. Yeah. I mean, they say that it's something that we sometimes miss in our daily life as knowledge workers is making something with our hands. Mm-hmm. And uh, Lego as a hobby, that's definitely, well, nerdy cool, but cool. <laughs> <laughs> I say that about my own hobbies as well. So I think that this is a nice moment to close down the interview on this light note. Thank you so much. And for your enthusiasm for sharing your passion and for making time for us in this in your very busy schedule yes we were so very grateful and we hope to stay in touch and Anna you as well thank you for filling in for Marty today uh, it was lovely having thank you, you. Thank this okay. is fantastic thank you yeah. so much okay so thank you everyone for listening and we're hoping to see you at the next podcast Thank you for taking your time and listening to Forecasting Impact. If you like this show, please subscribe to our podcast and leave a review. You can follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn at Forecasting Impact. Ask your questions and share your thoughts with us. We appreciate you and we look forward to seeing you at our next episode.